Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Good morning, everybody. I'm Georgia Hyatt, senior pastor here, and I hope you're doing well. Um, I had a case of the Rona rage and Corona crazy uh, the other day. I remember just looking up to God between somewhere between a pout and a prayer and just saying, please take this away. Just make it go away. And I think about amid COVID's disruptions and real social upheaval and financial insecurity for so many of us and just a bonkers political climate. I feel often discombobulated, isolated, insecure, and oftentimes just plain exhausted. And at the heart of it, sometimes I have to admit, is a real lack of hope. God's response to us in this passage, in this entire sermon series of the book of 1 Peter that we're going through, is actually really heartlifting because it recognizes the strangeness of where we are, but puts forth before us a strangeness of who we are, a peculiar people who live by a promise that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And this becomes our strange hope or our strange hope in a strange land. Peter wants us to return to the Lord together, our life and our ministry, to reimagine what our life and ministry look like together, and to recreate ways of living out the gospel, some very old and ancient ways and some very new and untried ways. We must resist the ways of the strange land we're in, but he calls us, strangely enough, to be strange ourselves. And that's not just to like reach out to some status quo or, or to have uh, daydreams of nostalgia or just, just frustratingly, hopelessly waiting, but to a living hope that's active and animating to us. He's actually calling us to a greater strangeness that the gospel does in us because of its beauty, truth, and glory. And the hope here is that this work of Jesus is so sure, so secure, so eternal, that it becomes a rock for us, a cleft for me and you, a home, an outpost of the kingdom of God with all this animating life amid the strangeness of our days.
Now, the big idea of 1 Peter, if you heard me say this because you know I love this Flannery O'Connor uh, quote, is you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. So we're going to begin to gather our hearts and minds and souls and bodies around this truth with a capital T. It is not a lowercase t. It is not an idea, but a person. We need an encounter with the living God who holds us out who holds out for us a living hope. I'm asking you to lean into the strangeness of who we are and who, 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 uh, is, who we are and who we're being transformed to be and this stranger, even more powerful love that he has for us. You see it in the very greeting. The Father, the Son, and the Spirits are in cahoots together to bring about his plan. Now, he addresses us as the elect, exiled diaspora. A diaspora just means dispersed. A dispersed people who God has a foreknowledge of, a pre-planning about. He pre-plans to address a people as they are strangers and aliens. And that's the point of today's sermon. It's also the point of all of 1 Peter. But he's been thinking about this, working towards it. A couple of years ago, a man and I had the opportunity, maybe 18 months ago now, uh, the opportunity to renovate our kitchen. Now, a grand, Amanda grew up on job sites. Her dad is in construction, and she's a designer, so she's basically been around renovations her whole life. But this one was strange because for the first time, we were actually planning for something for ourselves in our home from our ideas and planning, by which I mean Amanda's ideas and planning. Amanda had been doing all sorts of countless other renovations, but this was different because it was her idea, her planning, her inspiration for our room. And Chuck Hicks' crew tore it down to a shell and they began to make something beautiful together. That's what this foreknowledge is about in the passage today. That God's on this renovation project that will make us look very different than we've looked before. It is not demolition. It's renovation. And it's not preservation. It's renovation. And so we'll explore the strange reality of who we are, that we are people who live like nobody else in this world. And so we're going to run through it in terms of strange people of a strange hope. And the first thing we're going to talk about is that we are strange people of strange hope who are born from death, experienced today from tomorrow, and live as family from faction. Now, who are born from death? According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, that is one of our memory verses for this uh, season. And so we have that pre-recorded for you uh, in song so that it can get into your brain and heart. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a
Paul says that we are reborn, reborn by death, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' body was dead and decaying. His lungs had no breath in them. And now, his lungs do have breath in them. And in that death and resurrection, we are born again. Now, it's really frustrating when a biblical term like born again gets trivialized or trampled a bit. But ever since the presidential election of 1976, many of you weren't born by then, the term born again has become mocked by both non-Christians and Christians. But I want you to hear this idea, this reality of being born anew. This hope doesn't die. It's always popping up in every era, in literature and in screenplays. And the Black Panther burial and the red dirt stuff, and then the snow with that purple herb thing. Jon Snow's new life in season six. Heck, even The Princess Bride, the greatest movie of all time. Born again, to be born anew, lives in the imagination of every culture because, because all stories are tied to the one true story. And instead of snow or red dirt or herbs, we are born again because of the sprinkling of Jesus' blood and because of his resurrection. Not because of a sorceress's power, but because of the resurrection power of Jesus. And all of this begins to lead us to a new purpose, an obedience to Jesus Christ because we've been sprinkled with his blood. Think of the, uh, the dream scene in the ancestral home in Black Panther when Chadwick Boseman gets his purpose from his dad. It's born again to new life and purpose. Now this sprinkled blood stuff is actually a reference from the Old Testament where a lamb, a perfect sacrifice, would be killed and blood sprinkled over the mercy seat. And all of it is a big arrow that points to Jesus' work on the cross, an atonement, a repair both quelling God's anger against our sin and rebellion, but also opening the power and floodgates of heaven so that we might be born into a new reality, a new life filled with a living hope. So, I don't know where you are. If you're fearful of your own death and suffering, this reality says, run to him who died that we might live. If you're sick and tired of the angst of family and friendship. We run to him who died that we might live. When your spiritual journey is just simply having hazy memories of a true conversion laid uh, well long ago, run to him who died so that we might have life. If you've never experienced the welcoming and the love and the forgiveness that comes from God, run to him who died so that we might have life. Want to experience a living hope, a new birth again and again. Run to him who died that we might live. Exhausted by grief, plagued by doubt or fear, unsure if it's worth it, run to him who died that we might live. Spent by death and suffering all around, soul sick about the death of another and a culture of death that we live in, Run to him.
who died that we might live. And this is true for Christians who've been walking with Christ for a long time. It has been true in my life. It's easy, maybe even in, maybe for some pastors, including me, it's even easier that, that, that because, like, I'm a professional Christian, right? Like, there are these dark places that all Christians, uh, that, that, that they enter into that, that are kind of a mirage of living hope, of experiencing the rebirth. The motions and the right thoughts and the proper thinking, the pious practices, even the deeds of love and sacrifice can, can way too often replace the actual experience of communing with, talking to, encountering Jesus, our living hope. And it's so easy to be busy about other things and not enter there. And none of it will do. The only hope we have is from the Father and the Son and the Spirit of the living God to come. Some of these structures and, and systems and habits of Christianity are wonderful, but they're not the same thing as actually entering into them with an expectation of participating in the life of the living one. Well, this passage does get stranger because we don't have some, just have some kind of supernatural natal origin. We also live, strangely, in a different kind of calendar. Our chronology is what you're saying. We live in a time zone no one else lives in. Because strange people of strange hope are not only born from death, they actually experience today from tomorrow. Yes, that's odd. In the passage, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, that is a process that happens over time. It's a, the work of participation with the Spirit, of abiding by and in the plan of God. But if you jump down to that last phrase, it says that we're actually waiting for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's where it gets a little odd with our calendars. It's an odd thing. Salvation, according to Peter, and in other places in Scripture, is not actually here yet. It's begun at rebirth, but the renovation project is still going on. It's not done yet. It's still going on in us. And Peter talks about salvation as a future tomorrow event. He wants us to know that this tomorrow salvation orients, toward, orients us towards living with hope today. A tomorrow inheritance gives us courage for today. A tomorrow grace gives us power for today. We live in today from the resources of tomorrow. The late, great R.C. Sproul once quipped he was on a bus, and this eager young Christian came up to him, was trying to evangelize him, and he said, Are you saved, brother? And knowing, of course, what he meant, but trying to have a more Peter-like response, the great theologian R.C. Sproul says, not yet. Now, I tell you this story not just because it's so wonderfully snarky and I have a Ph.D. in snarkdom, but what it's doing is orienting our present life with this hope of this salvation being revealed. And it brings a reality to today. It's like until that great day, we always live in Advent. We wait and we worship. We whistle while we work. We lean into the strange timeline of love and embrace our oddness in this strange land 
and a chronology that is working out our salvation now from the future. That day when we are made right by God, ourselves, our neighbors, and all of creation. Jesus has inaugurated a reign of grace and hope, but he hasn't completed it yet. Now, if you're like me, some of us just can't get over our today selves in light of our tomorrow. Sometimes it's seasonal, sometimes it's clinical, sometimes it's pandemical. But our thoughts, our hearts, and life can orient toward the dark and the bad and the broken. Often I can only see what I woulda, coulda, shoulda. That's when we look towards tomorrow's salvation as invading today. But some of us have trouble getting over other people and hurts that have, other people have caused us. And so we don't just remember the rebirth and re, uh, uh, we remember rebirth of the living hope. We actually orient to, to tomorrow, not just for ourselves, for them. The world is so broken, we think. People are so lazy or graceless or silly or fearful or frustrating. They get caught up in the isms and the is and they just don't get it. And that's why we have to look towards tomorrow's salvation for today's, invading today's relationships, not just for ourselves, but for our friends. We have to remember that our brothers and sisters are people of the rebirth with a new and living hope that will be revealed in the last time. And that helps us remember the gospel, not just for ourselves, but for each other. And all the solutions are the same. Your depression doesn't define you. PTSD doesn't define me. Addictions, sin patterns, they, they, they don't define us. We are born from death to life, and we live today from tomorrow. This pre-planned renovation project of the Father, accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus and applied by the living Spirit, is bringing us hope for today. Our last major point. We are strange people of strange hope who are born from death, experienced today from tomorrow, and live as a family from faction. Peter addresses this set of churches, this region. I want you to think about this for a second. It's in modern-day Turkey, but it is the size of two Californias. Think about ancient travel and and, an ability to get how many cultural shifts that occur in a size like that, even in California. Peter believes that these Christian exiles are not just strange because of their geography, but they're strange because they who were not a people are a people together. Scholars write a lot about Pontus and Bithynia and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and, and what they are and who, what type of people are in the middle of them. But when you put it all together, it includes the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, the Jew and the Gentile, the free, the enslaved. And so God's foreknown renovation plan was a project that included people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who would have hated, even warred against each other historically, literally kill one another by their natural birth and natural hope. Now they would enter into a community that would be a family, a kingdom, a polis, a nation, 
a beloved. And so we lay down our anger, our hatred, our arms against each other, and we take our place as children of God. Through this rebirth and this, this tomorrow grace, we become a, a, a family from a people that were factions. Paul's going, look, I know the world's upside down. I know we all feel totally out of place for this, but I'm here to tell you that the stranger thing is, is that I am renovating a new people to myself that take these factions and bring them into family. Because in Jesus, in Jesus's kingdom, in Jesus's family, the zealot and the tax collectors, people who would have hated each other, become brothers and sisters in Christ. People who literally warred against each other, whose families have, have reigned anger and malice towards each other, become one new family in him. And this means that as a family, they're heirs together, co-heirs. Look at the language here. We are born into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded through faith. It can't be destroyed. It's pure to the core. Neither sin or sorrow or our I'm sorry's will let it fade away. And he is on the watchtower. The very power of God just, I could see, you know, in my mind, he's pacing back and forth with this divine, divine power, protecting this inheritance that will be revealed in us. And he waits to explode on the stage the day when the one, our Lord Jesus, who wept, would wipe every tear from our eyes. Peter wants us to realize that this whole reconstruction process, this renovation process, is actually building a space for a family to live. We'll get to more of that in chapter 2. But the very heirs of God would be together. And neither suffering nor death, not even division, can kill the church because it's been reborn by the one who raised us from the dead or is raised from the dead and will raise us from the dead. There is this future salvation that we're readying for. And as sure as God himself, he's protecting this inheritance of faith in us. Please know that and believe that in a world of utter division, one of the greatest witnesses to this world is that we live in family over faction. We have different strategies. We have different opinions. We have different focal points. Heck, we, we might actually, like Barnabas and Paul, have to work in different parts of the, uh, of the kingdom of God, doing different things because of some of those differences. But we have one loyalty, and that is to a triune God and to one another because we are heirs together of the imperishable. During the renovation of our kitchen, there were days, mostly me, where I was pouty and maybe a little murmuring, cooking in the basement, managing food through the garage isn't always fun, especially if you knew the way I keep my garage. 
We, of course, came to our senses many times, especially through Amanda and the kids. They reminded us that we're being privileged complainers, first world problems, but mostly of the future glory of the renovation project. And then I went over budget. Completely my own fault. Not Chuck's, just to be clear. Then I started feeling that guilt and that shame and the fear. And as you know me now, by now, shame's kind of like a warm blanket for me. It's not, it's not a healthy warm blanket, but, it, you know, it's a go-to place. But here's the reality. That eye on what beauty would become and the reality of that, the entire renovation project was not possible because of me. It wasn't even happening because of the incredible work of Amanda's design or the artisan skill of Icon's crew. It was made possible because of an inheritance. Hold on one second. Keep going. All right. All right. Let me retell the story. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the whole renovation project wasn't possible because of me, or it didn't happen because of Amanda's incredible design or Icon's incredible skill in building. It was made possible because of an inheritance. Because my father was generous, not just in his life, but in his death. That kitchen was reborn because of death. We lived with hope today or during the times of renovation because of a hope of something from the future. And it was made sure because my father left us an inheritance that, at least from our perspective, was imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that made us a strange family. Amanda got this idea. I don't know where exactly remember from, from where, but when it was down to the studs and the sheetrock wasn't on quite yet, Amanda and I took these big old thick Sharpie markers and marked up the studs with scriptures and references. They were of welcome, of hospitality, Bible verses about food and drink and service and grace. And the hope there was that our, re our, our renovation would not just be for our family biologically, but a place of rest and healing, a place where we'd receive new families amid the factious world, and then ultimately, Lord willing, we would see, receive them as family. I know there's no comparison to a kitchen project in the kingdom of the living God. But there is analogy. Friends, Jesus' death gives us birth. Tomorrow's revealed salvation gives us today's living hope. And this new family status, this inheritance, gives us resources that break down the factions of the world into the very family of God all to the glory of Jesus. And so I leave you with only the two phrases that I didn't cover today, which we have, could have two more sermons on, but we're not. One is a blessing to the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the other one is a blessing to all of us.
may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen.